Amen. If you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Ruth. In chapter 1, with the Word of God open before us, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we come into Your presence this evening, yearning for the help and ministry of Your Spirit. You would send the Spirit of Christ down to take the Word of God and to make it profitable, performing its work in all of our hearts, that I might not preach in word only, but also in demonstration of the Spirit and with power and with full conviction in the hearts of Your people, that Your Word, O God, will bring forth much fruit, that Your people, that they might find themselves in a, in a, in a mara, bitter desert like Israel in their Exodus wanderings, that You, O God, will make this a place of Elam Springs where there's sweetness and healing in Your mercy and grace. And we offer these prayers, O Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pick up the reading of Ruth chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, this is the Word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, my God is king. And the name of his, woman, his wife was Naomi, pleasantness. And the names of his two sons were Machlin and Killian, weakness and pining. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlin and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out and from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "'Go, return each of you to your mother's, her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me.' The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughter, why, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Uh, 
return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And then when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. I wonder, have you ever been in a place when all you could see was trouble and darkness and difficulty? Perhaps you were convinced that you had right royally messed things up, that you had no one to blame but yourself, and perhaps you saw your current position as evidence of God's disfavor towards you. You had sinned, and God had acted against you and disciplined you and it's been perhaps enormously painful, and you trudge on down the road bereft of any sense of comfort or hope. Well, that, in a sense, is the position that Naomi finds herself in. She's consumed with sorrow, overwhelmed with emptiness and the bitterness of her lot. We're told twice once in verse 3 and then again in verse 5, that she was left. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. That was bad, but it gets even worse. Then verse 5, both Machlin and Killian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She's in a position of utter and complete destitution, There was no welfare state in those days. There was no means for her to provide for herself. She would be cast entirely upon the charity of others. And she feels it bitterly. And she knows well who is responsible for this pain. God has done this to me, she said. Again and again, in verse 13, my daughter's It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She says at the end of the passage, do not call me Naomi pleasant, call me Mara, Mara, for the Almighty El Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me? and the Almighty has brought calamity. God, she says, has made my life bitter. 
Now, as we'll see this evening as we work through this passage, that's one of those half-truths that when you tell it as a whole truth, it becomes a whole untruth. God has emptied her, but He's also brought her home. And while she may feel very empty coming home behind her as she walks into Bethlehem, of course, she's not alone. Ruth is there, and God has great things in store for Ruth and for Naomi through Ruth and for us all through great Ruth's greater son. So here's a woman, and all she can feel is pain. And that pain becomes a a toxic element in her soul, and it, it mixes itself with unbelief and self-pitying, and it blinds her to God. Again and again in this passage, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 8, in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 12, in verse 16, in verse 22, we have the term return. That's what this passage is about, God returning His people. God's wondrous ways of bringing His people back, back from their wanderings, back to Himself, and back home when it's all said and done. And the lesson we learn in this story is that sometimes to bring us back, God um, has to empty us completely and hurt us very deeply. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, before I went astray, but before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. But now I I keep your word. But for the meantime, Nomi is blind to that purpose. All she can see is bitterness. All she can feel is bitterness. Her life is bitter. And Nomi herself, I think, has become more than a little bit bitter as well. It's like that famous hymn of Cowper, blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain, but God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And this evening, as we look at this passage, I want to ask you this evening, are you looking at your life through the lens of blind unbelief? Have you lost a sense of who God is and what God is doing. And maybe like Naomi, all you can see is the, is the hardships God has brought into your life, or the hardships God has not stopped from coming into your life. And the devil and your own heart have, have, have driven yourself into a toxic place where you can see no good, pain, self-pity, and unbelief have blinded you. So this evening in our sermon, I want to look at Naomi and ask that question about unbelief. How does unbelief blind us? And it blinds us in several ways. It blinds us, first of all, to what God can do. Secondly, we'll see it blinds us to what God has done in our own lives and also in the lives of others through our pain. And it blinds us to what God is doing. And worst of all, it blinds us to the bigger picture. It's never just a simple equation of, oh, I sinned and God is getting me. That's a a simple linear logic. Providence and life is much more complicated than that. 
And as we'll see in this book of Ruth, that God has much bigger fish to fry through Naomi's life and through Naomi's pain and through the mistakes she made and his wondrous ways of incorporating those mistakes and the sins of her and her husband and the two sons and and how he used that mistake to cause their hap to fall across the path of Ruth. Without him, there would be no um, Savior. I almost wish I called my first, ser- my first sermon the man who saved Christmas, because if Elimelech hadn't gone to Moab, which was a stupid thing to do, he'd never have met Ruth. He'd never met Ruth, then the rest would not be history, as they say. So how does unbelief blind us? First of all, unbelief blinds us to what God can do. Naomi's heading back to Bethlehem, back to the house of bread, back to the place where Yahweh has visited His people. And with her are these two ladies, Ruth and Orpah. And listen to her speech. Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That's that's a nice sentiment, but how was God going to deal kindly with them in Moab? There's no word of God there. There's no worship of God there. There are no promises of God there. Ruth saw things better. If Yahweh is to be her God, Ruth must go with Naomi back to Bethlehem. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. It's almost as if all she can think of is your best chance in life now is to get married, and your best chance of getting married is to go back to Moab and find a Moabite man. I mean, what self-respecting Jewish man's going to want a Moabitess, a pagan Gentile, for crying out loud? You'd be as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich in a synagogue. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kisses them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother, but Ruth, mother-in-law, but Ruth cling, clung to her, cleaved to her. It's the language of Adam cleaving to his wife in Genesis. This is the New Testament equivalent of a Christian who had left the church, returning to the church, and two pagans wanting to go with them, and the Christian saying, no, no, you stay in the world. I'm going back to the church by myself. The madness of it, leaving them in the darkness and the deadness of paganism. There's no hope for me in Bethlehem, Naomi thinks, and so there's no hope for you in Bethlehem. I mean, do the math, girl, she's saying. I've got no children. And what Jew would want to marry you? Even if you did marry a Jew, your children wouldn't be welcome in the temple for 10 generations, 400 years. It's a long time. 
She doesn't even conceive of the fact that Boaz could be a possibility. In her mind, it's beyond God. So she can't imagine God could do it, and therefore so God won't do it. Now, in one sense, we shouldn't be too hard on her. She's only got, you know, a few books in the Bible. We've got much more, and we also have Ephesians 3 at the very end. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is able to do far more abundantly than you can ask or even that you can imagine. God's ability to give is not restrained by your ability to ask. God is able to give much bigger answers to prayers than you could even think of asking. And God is also able to give much more than you can even imagine. It's like that line in, in Star Wars. I need to remember it now. But whenever um, Luke is trying to encourage Han Solo to go and rescue, you know, Leia, and Hansel is not having any of it, and um, Luke goes, but she's rich. And Hansel says, well, how rich? And Luke says, richer than you can imagine. And Hansel says, I don't know, I can imagine quite a bit. <laughs> well, Paul says, that's exactly your problem, right? You can't imagine prayer requests big enough for God to answer. His ability to answer is beyond your capacity to ask and beyond even your capacity to imagine. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man, the largesse of God, His capacity to answer your prayers. But unbelief has blinded Naomi to that. She knows none of the plucky courage of Jonathan. Remember whenever Jonathan says to his armor-bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by a few. It's also possible that God would do nothing, and Jonathan and his friend would be <laughs> cut to pieces, which would be rather bad. But Jonathan steps forward. He's got no promise. God didn't say, go and I'll be with you. He just goes, maybe God will help us. They're uncircumcised. We are not, and maybe God will help us. And he did. There's a plucky faith there, but, but pain and unbelief and self-pity has blinded Naomi's eyes to those realities, and she cannot see what God could do, what God can do. Are you in that position this evening? I know some of you are. Some of you are in pain beyond my capacity to imagine, and you can't see any good in your circumstances, and because you can't see any good you think God can't bring any good. And the, the lesson of Ruth 1 screams at you, that is not true. God is much bigger than that. Your pain may be many, but God's mercy is more. Unbelief can blind us to what God can do. Secondly, I want you to see that unbelief can blind us to what God has done. What God has done. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Change my name. By deed pole, call me Mara, which of course means bitterness, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now, Mara is a term with a history. 
And you've got to remember that. If you turn back quickly in your Bible to Exodus 15, just after the Song of Moses, which is a great song of triumph. Israel set out from the Red Sea. They've just crossed the Red Sea. God has wiped out the, the Pharaoh and his army. Remember those famous words of, of Moses, you, you will just sit and watch. God will do it all. You will do nothing but watch. And then Moses made Israel, verse 22, set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And remember, this is one of the few books um, Nomi has in her Bible, so I imagine she's at least referring back to this. She's just picking a word. Oh, I know, I'll call myself Marah. I think she's, she's echoing the bitterness of Israel here in the wilderness. And she walks across the wilderness back to Bethlehem. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses. Even see the people, that they couldn't see God. It was all Moses' fault. The wives are saying, Why did you, I, knew, I told you we shouldn't follow this clown. And, and I'm thirsty, and Johnny and Jemima and Shlomo, they're even thirstier, and I'm, I'm tired. What shall we drink? And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the log water became sweet. I can almost imagine Naomi reading this passage in her devotions, going, That's me. She stops at verse 23. That's exactly how I feel. There's no water here. I know better than this. It's not Moses' fault, it's God's fault. God has done this. Now, as you see reading on in the passage, there are two sides to Mara. There's the grumbling, the bitterness, the resentment. But there's also the great grace of God, the grumbling of man and the grace of God. And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and Moses threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where, they, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Mara was a place where the grace of God was definitively and gratuitously displayed. God could have wiped Israel off the face of the earth. Uh, it wasn't the first time they would grumble, and it was, it was the first time they grumbled, but it wouldn't be the last time they grumbled. But in Naomi, all she can see is the first side, the, the reason to grumble, the reason to complain. She can't see. 
She can't see the hope. Ian Duguid says, in the midst of her pain, Naomi had completely forgotten the history of God's faithfulness. Pain can blind us to what God has done. God has brought her home. God has made her life bitter. But she's on her way back home, and Ruth is with her. And God has emptied her, but He's he's restoring her piece by piece, guiding her and leading her, what God has done. And He's about to work in Ruth's heart and to save this girl and to bring her into the true knowledge of God. But pain has blinded Naomi to those realities, what God can do and what God has done. It was one of the things about marriage. They say, um, you're in a bad place. So, um, John Gottman, who's a Jewish marriage counselor, he says that how you know you're in a really bad place in your marriage is when you look back at your best times, look back at your honeymoon, you look back at vacations, maybe anniversary trips you took with your wife or your spouse, and you think to yourself, how could I have been so stupid? In our worst moments now, when our marriage is healthy, you look back at those times, you think, well, those were good times, right? And, And I want to get back to those times. But when you're really on the edge of divorce, you look back at your life and you think, my husband, my wife is a real shrew, a real nasty person, and, and how could I have been so stupid to be duped by them? Even the best times in the past are kind of viewed through manure-colored spectacles, and everything is dark, and everything is bleak, and that's exactly the way Naomi looks back over her life and what God has done. It's bitter. She feels the rod you might say, but she can't see the hand of the one holding it. It's the hand of her father. Then in the third place, unbelief blind us to what God is doing. Back to Ruth 1. Or Ruth, yeah, Ruth 1. He has testified against me, she said. Somehow God had spoken and testifies a legal term. She felt, maybe in her conscience, maybe in Scripture, that her decision and her husband's decision to go to um, Moab was a sinful one, and God had witnessed to her in her conscience that it was wrong, it was sinful. The hand of the Lord has gone against me, we saw in verse 13. God has emptied me. And in in her mind, it's a simple equation of, I have sinned and God's against me. She can't see beyond that. She's lost all the men in her family. She's no children and lost the hope of grandchildren. But as she comes back to Bethlehem, she's coming back at the time of the harvest. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And we know there's a purpose there, that God had visited this place. She's gone out full. She's come back empty. But all she can feel is the emptiness and the bitterness and the mara of her life. She 
She feels empty. She says, I've, literally she's saying, I have absolutely nothing. Could you imagine Ruth? <laughs> Ruth just committed herself to her, more about that in a second. Um, but she comes back and, and she says, I'm empty. There's nothing. I've, I've going, I've, I've, there's nothing going for me. Nobody seems to notice Ruth, actually. She goes back and she says, I'm empty. The woman of, of, of um, Bethlehem say, this is Naomi, but nobody asks, who's this girl with you? Nobody asks who that is. Ruth is the invisible woman in the scene, uh, shoved to the back at this part of the story. It's as if she wasn't even there. But God knows that she's there. All of history knows that she's there. We know she's there. We see her large. The whole book's called by her name. But it wasn't that obvious back then. It's not so often the case as, as God has, has, has emptied us in times in our life, and all we can see is the emptiness. All we can feel is the darkness and, and, and the broken pieces. And, and it'll take years to look back and see how God took this piece and that piece and that thread and this thread and wove them all together as that famous hymn of Tory, uh, um, Corey Tembum says, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Sometimes he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unveil the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the, in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. But, it, but in the weaving of it, we only see the darkness. We can't see the silver and the, and the, and the, and the gold. All we can see is the, the, the mess and the underside of the rug, all the loose ends, and it just seems such a mess to us. And it's only when the, the canvas is turned right side up do we see the pattern God has been weaving. And the pattern God has been weaving in Ruth's life is a homeward pattern. She's homeward bound. And whatever God's doing in your life, and some of you are in tremendous agony, I know that. I spoke to one of you this morning, and I could just see the pain in your eyes, the sorrow, the sense of just trudging along. You can barely see the ground in front of your next step, and you're just trudging through life, and it doesn't seem to make any sense. Why has this happened? Why did God do this? Why didn't God stop this? And the questions and the doubt and the fears go round and round and round, and you can't see. And even in heaven, I'm not sure you will see all of the answers. God is much bigger and greater. He, he, he's infinite. He's eternal. His wisdom is fathomless. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments. His ways pass finding out. He's, his, the ripples of your life are moving in all different directions. There's a famous meteorologist, I, I forget his name, but he's the one who said, basically, the butterfly, um, the butterfly flapped its, its wings in an Amazon rainforest, and there is a, a hurricane on the other side of the earth. And his computer models actually showed that is true. He, he, he puts in all the data, and 
It predicts the weather, right, with increasing accuracy, sometimes not so much, but it does increase the accuracy. But he realized he had this almost unbelievably complex algorithm that would, that would predict the weather patterns, that if he changed just a tiny detail, just a tiny little thing over here, just a, one little thing, almost as small as a butterfly flapping its wings, it literally changed everything about the weather the next day or the next week. The ripple effects of tiny little things have huge effects elsewhere. And it's, it's immeasurably complex. It's, it's like in Job, at the end of Job, as we go through Job, and Job begins with God, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job's in a great position. And then there's that bit in the middle of Job where he loses his sway. He says, I go forward. God's not there. I go backward. He's not there. He acts on the left. I cannot behold him. He acts on the right. I, I cannot find him. But he knows the way that I take. And when he's tried me, I'll come forth as gold. He's aware God is there doing something. But he doesn't know what God is doing. But he has this confidence still in the middle of the book that, that, that God knows the way that I take. And then in the early 20s, Job goes over the precipice and just loses all sense of hope as he falls into the darkness. And then, in chapter 38, God comes and says to Job, essentially, Job, do you want to fight? Are you angry with me, Job? And Job, essentially, is saying, doesn't say, but that's his, yes. And so God says to Job, okay, brace yourself. Get into a fighting stance, and we're going to wrestle. And then God just gives Job all these questions. Where were you when I gave the pig that silly tail? And who gave Leviathan his strength? And there's this question after question after question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And of course, the answer to each of those questions is, I don't know. I was nowhere. I have no clue. I'm dealing with a God who's much bigger and better than I am. And that's the point. Job, is, 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 he's, he's overwhelmed with the majesty and the glory of this God. It's question after question after question after question cascades down from God's mouth into Job's ears until at the end, Job says in Job 42, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. I spoke and I was a foolish man, Job said. And Job learned that the way through the pain is not understanding why God did it, why God didn't do it. God doesn't need our approval. The way through the pain is through worship. It's not knowing why God did something that's enough for the Christian soul. It's knowing, just, just simply knowing that God is the one doing it brings a, a peace and a calm and a rest. And as we get to that point and we just relax, like when you put a dog on its back, you got a puppy, right, and you put a dog on its back, and um, it growls, or even better situation, if a puppy, when it's a little little puppy, is breastfeeding from mummy, and it, it, its teeth are coming in, so the puppy bites mummy, not a good thing to do. Mummy will take the puppy and put the puppy on its back, and she'll clothe her mouth around the puppy's neck and squeeze until the puppy relaxes completely, and then mummy lets go. It's her way of saying, don't do that again. <laughs> But it's that sense of relaxing, and God is putting Job on his back and putting his hand on Job's throat and just squeezing, and, and it's when Job relaxes and worships. He finds the truth of 
of, of Cowper's hymn, sometimes a truth, sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing on his wings. So unbelief can blind us to what God is doing in our own lives. And they can also blind us to what God is doing through our life and our pain in the lives of others. Ruth's commitment is incredible, isn't it? Even though Ruth knows she will not be a very welcome presence in Bethlehem, she commits herself to Naomi. It's a crescendo of commitment. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Listen to Ian Duguid as he describes the commitment here. Each of these statements ratchets up the level of her commitment. Ruth was not merely relocating her home to go somewhere geographically less pleasant, as if someone were willing to move from sunny Southern California to the unbearable heat of Death Valley. That would be a noble sacrifice. This is far more. Ruth is committing her whole life to Naomi, body and soul, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. In doing so, she is also committing her life to Naomi's God, whom she calls as a witness by his personal name, Yahweh. She's even willing to die and be buried in Naomi's land, the land of Naomi's God, not the gods of the Moabites. Given the intimate connection between the land and the deity in the ancient Near East and the importance of proper burial for a restful afterlife, this was the ultimate commitment a person could make in the ancient world. She further binds herself to do this with an oath of self-imprecation. If she reneges on her promise, she invites the Lord, Naomi's God, to stretch out His hand to strike her down. Here is an astonishing act of surrender and self-sacrifice. Ruth is laying down her entire life to serve Naomi and is expecting nothing. She doesn't know of Boaz. She doesn't know nothing down the future. She's just saying, I commit myself to you lock, stock, and two smoking barrels. What does Ruth say? Well, you know, thank you. I'm so grateful. That was Naomi. You know, I mean, the thought of going back to Bethany by myself was pretty miserable, but at least you'll be there with me. No, Ruth is so depressed, she can't even say anything. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped talking, literally in Hebrew. No gratitude, no thanksgiving to God that God had reached down and saved this Moabites and given her a companion who would stick with her through thick and through thin. Know me, blindness, unbelief, and pain have blinded her eyes to what God is doing in her life and what God has been doing in Ruth's life, what Ruth is. It's amazing how me-centered pain can make me. Blind unbelief has done Naomi a number. Unbelief, finally, can blind us to the big picture 
Life is bigger than us. But pain tends to make us like one of those vacuum-packed chicken breasts. It just sucks everything in to our own me, myself, and I.com. We can't see how God is taking and using our pain and our loss in the lives of other people to further His plan. Sinclair Ferguson says, if you came across the first chapter of Ruth lying on the ground and knew no more about it, you might well wonder why the title of the book is Ruth. For this first chapter seems to be mainly centered on Naomi. Why does she feature so largely in the opening chapter of a book called Ruth? It's because the story of Naomi is about Ruth, or more accurately, it's about God bringing Ruth to Himself and positioning her life in the ongoing unfolding of His purposes for the world. God's ways are so much more complicated than we might imagine. We tend to think of God working in a simple, linear fashion. I sinned, therefore I'm suffering. But God's ultimate purpose has not been to punish Naomi for her family's spiritual failure in abandoning the land and all the promises. Rather, through the mysterious intermingling of His providential control over history with Naomi's family and all of her failures, the Lord's purpose has been to reach through her life to bring Ruth to Himself, and through Ruth to bring David into His world, and through David to bring Christ into His world, and through Christ to bring us all to Himself into His heaven. Alexander White was one of the greatest preachers in the 19th century in Scotland. But he was the bastard child of a teenage girl in Scotland. And he grew up feeling the sting and the reproach of being born out of wedlock. And I'm sure as a young lad growing up, all he could see was his own pain. All his mother could feel was her pain, her loneliness. Why had she been so stupid to have sexual relations with a man who is not her husband? Maybe just once since she's pregnant. And I think the man offered actually to marry her, but she said no. She knew he wasn't the kind of man that he, she should take as a husband, and so she turned his advance down and, and committed herself to raise her son by herself. And the pain, and yet what was God doing? It, it wasn't just the, the pain. She probably thought, it's my sin. God is punishing me for my stupidity and my lust and so forth. But God was actually working to break this young lad's heart down and to fashion in him a heart that was tender, because pain is never wasted in a preacher's life. When I was fired from my first pastorate, Ligon Dungan said that to me. He said, Neil, mark my words, pain is never wasted in a preacher's life. And God was using all that pain to break Alexander White down and make him the kind of vessel he could use for his glory in Scotland. But pain blinded him to that in his early years, as pain is blinding Naomi to all that in her life. Is, is pain blinding you to that? Uh, do you have the kind of view of God that it's like the blind man in John 9? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Because something is, life's a mess. There's got to be some sin somewhere to explain it. And Jesus says, it was not this man's sin or his parents' sin, but that the glory of God might be revealed in his life. 
And that's what God is doing in your life. He's revealing His glory. At times through emptying us, at times through hurting us, at times coming in His almighty power as one who's making our life and our lot very bitter indeed. But He's not trying to kill us. He's trying to save us, and through us, not just us, but the lives of innumerable people around us who are impacted by the grace He pours out into us through our times of suffering and through our times of hardship. Well, let's bring this sermon to a conclusion. So Naomi's body has returned to Bethlehem, back to the promised land, but her soul is very far from God still. She's still more than a little angry with God. She doesn't trust Him. What's the answer? Well, the answer for Naomi is an answer she can't quite see yet, but it's the answer that you and I can't see. And it'll become clear to her that it should be clear to each of us here this evening. The answer is Christ. Where do you go when you doubt that God really has your best interest at heart? Where do you doubt? Where do you go when you doubt that God really loves you and all of your circumstances proclaim bitterness at you? Where do you go? You go to the gospel, you go to great Ruth's greater son. You go to the lad who left his father's house to come down and live with us in the land of death. You come to the lad against whom the Almighty's hand really did go out in bitter judgment. Even though he had done no sin of his own to deserve such punishment, And yet Jesus comes anyway as Emmanuel, the one who left the glories of heaven in order to say to us, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This is amazing. Jesus could never call His Father my God until He became a human being. And then in human nature, his human soul could look up and call God, my God, because He's one with His people. Your God shall be my God. And beyond that, Jesus said something that Ruth could never say. Your sins shall be my sins, and my righteousness shall be your righteousness, and my glory shall be your glory, and my throne shall be your throne and my home shall be your home. For I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. If it were not so, I would have told you. For where you ought to have died, I have died. And where I shall live forever, you shall live forever. In my Father's house there are many mansions. And even if you were to say to him, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Like Ruth, he will cling to you and will never let you go. 
That's the answer. Now, Naomi, we can't blame her. She can't see any of that yet because it's beyond her ability to imagine, and it's beyond her ability to ask. And while it's still beyond your ability to imagine and our ability to ask, we can see it in the meridian day of the New Testament's revelation. In Christ's grace, He has clung to us and united our souls to His in an eternal union. And somehow, by a faith that's almost unimaginable, Ruth saw something of that in, 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 in Naomi's God. Even though Naomi could only see bitterness, and there was much bitterness to be seen, Ruth saw something in Yahweh that drew her soul out to Him, and she trusted Him. She left Moab. She may be much better in an earthly sense to stay in Moab and go back there. But Ruth left Moab because deep in her heart, Moab was no longer her home. She wanted to be with Naomi. And more than that, she wanted to be with Yahweh, Naomi's God. And that's the message of Ruth one for you and for me. If these two women, Naomi can only see bitterness, and yet somehow Ruth can only see the faithfulness of God and pledges herself to Him, and yet the poor lass has no idea just how gracious and faithful Yahweh will be to her. And Ruth's God is your God, and your God, and your God, and your God. And no matter how He empties you, no matter how He fills your life with bitterness, Naomi now would tell you, you know, I was a stupid woman. I ought to have said, though He slay me, yet will I cling to Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, for the lessons we learn in the darkness. Sometimes we never learn them anywhere else. I pray, Father, that you would draw near to us this evening. Forgive us for our many sins, and help us, O Lord, to trust you and to find a light in the darkest of times, for even the darkness is not dark to you, and night is as bright as the day. We offer these prayers, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.